against the wall on time. So I've got to get moving. You know that I don't really pay attention to very well. At any rate, where we are at this morning in Galatians 2, um, you recall we just covered over the portion of Paul's private meeting that he sought. And we were able to jump back up into verses 1 through 10. We won't handle the whole text, obviously. But again, the idea is Paul came to Jerusalem to ask for a private meeting with Peter. James and with John. And then at some point, the private meeting spilled over into uh, the public sphere where certain men were caught sneaking in to find out really what's going on and try to destroy what Paul was teaching and try to set him against uh, those at the private meeting. As to somehow point out, again, Paul is an outlier. The apostles are different than he. Therefore, Paul has it all in all that he told you regarding the gospel. But as we saw last week, just jump down to verse 9. Uh, and notice the outcome of the meeting. At, at the end, you recall, we end our time in verse 6, where um, he says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, that, that is, they didn't add anything to me, they, they, they saw in our discussion that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the gospel. And, and the result of that, jump down to verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, that is again, Paul reconciling this account to say that my gospel is not law or idiosyncratic to me. I've manipulated it or modified it as I'm being charged. But as you see, the Catholicity of it is that I met with Peter, James, and with John. And then as we deliberate, as we discuss the role of Gentiles and the law, the issue that faith is, yes, good, but you must along with faith, instrumentally add circumcision and lawful observance. Judify of, of, of the gospel. You need to do these two things, or you remain in an unrighteous state. This issue, Paul speaking with James, Cephas, and as Peter and John, verse 9, who seem to be pillars, and that they're pillars in the church, they perceive the grace that was given to me. And they heard it, but when we discussed it, what was the result? Did they run me off? Did they say that I had it all wrong? No, as he argues to the church in Galatia. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles. And they should circumcise me. The only thing they did mention to me in that time not anything about modifying the gospel or Paul, you have it wrong, you need to get it right. No, they didn't do any of that. They added nothing of content to my gospel. The only thing they asked me to do is remember the poor. But this, 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 this is uh, neither here nor there because this is the very thing I was interested And so at the end of verse 10, the Judaizers at this point should be soundly in public. The wedge that they're trying to drive between Paul and the church of Galatia should have been ripped out and the church should unified with this account. Because again, you can't put me against the apostles. I'm with the apostles as proof that not only is my preaching about Jesus Christ the center of my ministry, but it's the center of all apostolic preaching and all The good news announcement, not mine, but the Good news announcement. God's victory over sin comes from the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Full stop. 
Now, the seriousness of this content of the gospel, as we've been speaking for months now, about the seriousness of the content of the gospel, that we have to get it right. What is the gospel? What are its contents? Where can I perceive that someone is modified or added to some sort of legal legislation that requires me to do something so I have Christ plus something else? How do I modify? What is the seriousness of this dispute? Paul increases, yet the seriousness again, by now moving the scene again. This is such a big deal. He uses the word of condemnation. It's so serious that either at this moment, from the scene that we're about to read, Peter is upheld, or at least be ignored, and lose Christ, or we maintain Christ, and Peter must be. It's this serious. It's no middle ground. We either have Peter or Christ. This is the seriousness and weightiness of the contents of the gospel. Notice the scene where he moves to Antioch. Notice verse 11. He's moving on to yet another episode where he's going to spare no in the gospel. It must be Christ and him alone. No matter if you're an apostle, or no matter if you're an evangelist, no matter if you're, you're, you're a seasoned elder within the church. It doesn't belong to Peter. It doesn't belong to the session. It doesn't belong to a minister. He is a steward. With Paul saying, even if I preach the gospel, I am to be condemned. It's not my model. Case in point, we went to Antioch. Verse 11. When Cephas, that is Peter, continuing on the story, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. Now, the importance of moving the scene, just before we jump into what transpired at Antioch, is the point of Antioch. The significance of the chain of, change of scenery to Antioch is, if we were to consider where we were at in verses 1 through 10 in Jerusalem, we'd consider Jerusalem to be the center of Jewish Christianity in the first century. It was the center of Jewish Christianity. Now we're moving the scene over to Antioch to give yet another example of the seriousness of getting the gospel right, that no one can be spared if they alter its contents. He moves the scene over to Antioch. Why? Because it's the center of Gentile This move of scenery is important to understand how scenery unfolds the way that it does. It's a Gentile context. We're now over in Antioch with the Gentiles. Notice the beginning of verse 12. For before certain men came from James, we're now talking about Peter, and we'll get back to the issue of standing condemned. But I want to jump over that and just consider, here's Peter at Antioch, the center of Gentile Christianity. Who should he be with, probably? Gentiles. Yes, he was. For, verse 12, before certain men came from James, what was he doing? He was eating with Gentiles. Now, what's happening in this scene right before it begins to well, why is Peter in Antioch? Well, most likely what's happening at this point is Peter is on a pastoral visit to Antioch. 
know, making an oversight round. He's peering over in Antioch to check on the churches in Antioch. So he is functionally on a pastoral visit to Antioch. And while he is there at Antioch, the center of Gentile Christianity, he is eating with and enjoying the company of Gentile believers. What's so unique about that story? Nothing and everything at the same time. In the sense that it's not unique because it is to be expected. It's a natural outcome of the truth of the gospel. These men who exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon our brothers. I belong to them and they belong to me. We are in union, one with another through the power of the Holy Spirit, who unites us under one head, who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We together are the body of Christ. Peter, on visit, finds it appropriate to eat with and enjoy the company of Gentile believers without cause for he sees we're united through one medium, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look at how Paul describes it a little bit later in chapter 3. If your text is wide open, you can lay it open. You'll probably be able to see it over on the right side. Chapter 3, verse 28. Paul claims we'll get there later on, but it is, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, again, not, not that they're no longer identified with people groups, but the idea through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's not a distinction at through the gospel, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Again, he's not canceling categories. He's speaking of our union through faith. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Jew nor free in the scenario where Peter clearly believes this. He sat down upon visitors to sit and eat and enjoy the company. He believes. He believes what Paul says in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then, as he looks over at these brothers in Antioch, he knows they've trusted upon Christ for salvation, that their faith terminates upon him as the soul saving object. And then Peter's response to that would have been that you are Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to the promise. In other words, Peter at this point is doing the right These are his brothers. So what change? You'll notice how the scene unfolds. You have it there in verse 12. You again, certain men that came from James. Here's Peter at the table eating and enjoying his brothers. Certain men showed up. Now look at after he says he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, the certain men from James... He drew back. And then he says, he separated himself. Now, why? Why is he enjoying the fellowship and union as we described? And then certain fellows show up. He sees them as he's sitting down, enjoying, laughing, precarious, enjoying the time of fellowship at the table with these men, and he notices, uh oh. And then it's as though he gathers his tray, leaves the table. Why? What took place in his mind when he saw it? Well, we can't. 
can't be exactly certain, we see what the sin was, we can't be exactly certain what the scenario specifically was, but very likely what was happening is Peter was eating with Gentile believers food that was prohibited by law. He was most likely eating at the table or enjoying fellowship with these brothers in his liberty in Christ. This is the language of verse 4 of chapter 2, yet because of Paul's brother secretly brought in, he slipped in to spy out what? Out of freedom. Well, what is the grounds of your acting so freely? How have you found this freedom to enjoy all things through faith? Whether they be things considered lawful or things considered unlawful, how do you have freedom to enjoy all things through faith? Because we have this freedom. What is the grounds? It is the grounds of Christ Jesus the Lord. They have spied and spot, they have slipped and spy out of you that you have in Christ Jesus. Well, what are they seeking to do to you? Bring you back to spirit. For how long should we submit to this? Verse 5. Now. What is at stake if we do? When these certain men came walking in from James, and Peter gathers up, oh, i got to grab my milk, i got to grab my oranges, and put on my tray, it's time to eat. i, I got to go sit with them. What's at stake in that meeting? An awkward social interaction? At minimum. But what is the substance is it safe? Paul says, verse 5, don't yield even for a moment. Why? Because the truth of the gospel must be preserved. See, again, why is it a problem that Peter is eating food that is probably unlawful for Jews to eat? Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem because they would see him taking the joy of this table? It isn't. Or at least in this reality to think Christ is a problem. See, in the act of eating unlawful food, Peter is demonstrating freedom in Christ. He's concretely demonstrating in that moment to those men at his table that conformity to the law is not necessary for righteousness. He is displaying by breaking bread with these men, eating foods otherwise not lawful for Jews to eat. Peter being a Jew. This is exactly why Paul calls him out on the content of the speaking, verse 14. If you, because you know, the, the, the point is, Peter is not observing that which he now is pretending when the certain men from James come up. He is not practicing what's he's Paul's observing. And he sees it even here at this very moment. This is the review, verse 14. If you, though a Jew, think of it, if you live like a Gentile, that is, he lives in freedom, and that is, you don't live like a Jew, you're not doing this, Peter. You, you don't do it. What you're doing with these men at table is how you live. Then how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's the signal you're sending from eating at the table. There's something wrong with you. You still functionally lack 
then why is it given to us in the text that Peter, what, what is Peter's motivation for getting up with him? What happened to Peter in that moment? Notice Paul very carefully notes it for us. Notice the text in verse 12. Again, we know what he did. The action that's recorded is he drew back. He gathered up his tray and separated himself from them. He went to go sit at the good table. Why? What was his motivation in doing it? What happened to Peter in that moment when he did He feared.
actual weaknesses. Here is Peter again. Paul carefully says to him, it wasn't calculated weakness that he wanted to distort the gospel or that he wanted to confuse it there. It was out of fear. He was ashamed. He was confused. He was weakened. Luther makes this comment that Peter was afraid of the Jews who had come from James and he fell on account of his fear. What was it that he feared about them? Again, to the point, In some way, Peter feared, and I think he knew that his thought in the good condition of his Peter feared their disapproval. Whether it scandalized their conscience that he was eating freedom, or it just made him kind of look less than by enjoying his freedom, he feared whatever that calculation was going to be. He put everyone in jeopardy. I just like you, if, if we look at the portrait of Peter um, so far, just here in Galatians, we're told by Paul as he uses his argument of union with Peter that the context of what I speak is the content of what Peter speaks. Why is this significant to be out of Peter? Because as he says, he's a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. Everyone knew him. He was revered as a pillar in the early church. You think about his role in the certain level. How do we get beyond it? The question is somewhat along these lines. We have to ask ourselves, who or what will control us? That's the fundamental question that we have to ask as I think it through. Who or what will control me? When I lose my way and I'm off in the weeds, uh, considering everyone's valuations of me, and remember about this, they're never as bad as you think they are, and on the flip side, they're never as good as you think they are. 
so, so no reason to despair. You think that everyone remembers all these bad things. They really don't. Uh, and, 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 and over here, when they're giving you praise, you really didn't do as good as you, they say you did. Just find that median. Because it should never uh, consume you in your identity that you're on a performance wheel for the sake of others and their applause. But we always go there by the slightest movements in our peers' evaluations. Remember, they're never as bad, neither are they as good as you think they are. So how do you find the center, the anchoring point? Once again, ask yourself, who or what will control you, Adam? Will it be the word of God and his promises to me? Or will it be the opinion of my peers? This was the question that Peter should have wrestled with. He instinctually, by constitution, feared the opinions of others. And at that moment, the word of God and its promises of surety and rest were vanquished. One writer mentions it this way. He says, quote, the fear of man can immobilize us when we should take action and gag us into silence when we should speak. It's powerful, but remember, its power is deceptive. The projections that you have are not true. They're often distorted by a number of emotions. And the power that another's evaluation of you and your performance and your life that you're leaving is not as powerful as you think. The power of another's words are deceptive. Proverbs 29, 25, Solomon, the man of wisdom, speaks this way, though he probably, as we all, ought to take his own advice. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. It's deceptive. Its power is deceptive. See, he says, The fear of man lays a snare. So what ought I do in the place of being caught up in the fear of my peers their evaluations, and so forth. What ought I do? Well, he provides the answer in verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. Okay, I got it. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's why it comes back to the question, who or what will control you? You see, the object of your surety Acceptance and freedom, as with Peter here in this moment, mustn't ever be the opinion of your neighbor. They can neither condemn you nor justify you. Remember that. Not antagonistically, but by freedom's sake. They cannot save you, neither can they condemn you. Your surety and acceptance and freedom mustn't ever be the opinion of your neighbor. True Rest, of which Paul will now address, true rest, acceptance, freedom. And I mean the kind that will just, like, you'll find your way back to the center as you meditate upon and pray through the truth. That the true, capital T, true rest, acceptance, and freedom can only be provided through our identity in Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 2. Our freedom, acceptance, peace, our freedom we have in Christ Jesus. 
Anything else, as he says, is slavery. Now, as I said, verse uh, 29, uh, chapter 25, 29, 25 of Proverbs, um, the fear of man lays a snare. Notice here in the text what the fear of others endangered. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's very severe. It, it's more severe in this particular text of Galatians than perhaps just our concerns over our neighbor in our life situation here at Antioch. Notice the severity of what was at stake. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because getting up from the table and leaving, he stood condemned. You you see, it's either Peter is true and right, and we've lost Christ altogether, or Peter must be opposed. Verse 14, again, but when I saw Here Paul is in Antioch observing the joy and the table setting and the fellowship of the brothers. These men show up and Paul's observing the entire scenery of the cafeteria. And I saw that their conduct, that is Peter and Barnabas with him, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I opposed him to his face. I said to Cephas, who was all gathered, how many people heard you? Everybody. Before them all, everybody who was seated there, the Gentiles, the men who came from James, I stood there and opposed him to his face publicly, verbally, in front of everyone because of the weight of what was at stake. If you, Peter, though a Jew, if you live like a Gentile, (gasps) Right? Because the men who came from James would be scandalized. What, Peter? Yes. Yes. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, as he kind of, you can picture him standing there with his tray kind of removed and Paul's talking to him. No, 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 no. What you're doing right now is not consistent with what you do always. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, Peter knew better. And that's why Paul opposes him publicly. He knew better, but in weakness he chose duplicity and hypocrisy. Fundamentally, Peter had a moment where his behavior undermines the integrity of his confession. Notice, again, what Paul insists in the text. I'll read verse 14 and then apply it quite simply. If you think about yourself as a Christian, as a believer, about the implications and the ethics of the gospel in your life, verse 14, think of yourself here, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct, think about your own life, your own conduct, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What was the problem fundamentally with Peter and his fear? He acted in a way which was not in step with the truth of the gospel in his confession. You see, Paul insists that you, that I, 
that we as the people of God who confess his name, that we on a daily basis bring all of our life into line with the moral and ethical implications of the gospel. He saw that Peter and Barnabas were not in stride with the truths of the gospel in their conduct. What is the implication? That we, the people of God, must bring all of our life into line with the moral and ethical implications of the gospel. And Peter and Barnabas failed to do it. Now, again, I think, I just pause here as I wind down my time with you. Again, the charge is hypocrisy. I think this points to the very real stewardship of the church. No individual is going to be all things to all men perfectly in all moments. I think the criticism of the church that there's hypocrisy that abounds is fair but um, unfair. Hypocrisy abounds everywhere where the human condition is. The church is not above hypocrisy. No no one of us is above hypocrisy. But it doesn't delegitimize the truth of the scriptures because men fail on account of their weaknesses and fear. Let all men be liars, but God be truthful. We shouldn't therefore live hypocritically. Like it doesn't really matter. God's truth stands. It is attached to the way that we display his ethical and moral life or virtues in our lives. So we ought to, as Paul says here, bring every aspect of our life into the conduct befitting of the gospel that we confess. That we cannot just be those who confess, but do not live conductly. We don't conduct our lives in stride with that which we verbally confess. Paul here is saying, Peter, you don't live like this, and you know it. Neither do you confess that you ought to live a different way than you do, but now you're acting as though you are. Your conduct is undermining the integrity of your confession. That needs to matter to all of us. That our conduct be consonant with our confession. Finally, I'll just make this mention of the danger of hypocrisy in particular. Notice verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You know, so everybody started getting up from the table following Peter's example. So severe was it, the fear of others and the opinions and projections of our peers fell upon, notice what he says there, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Remember, Barnabas came there with Paul. Think about who Barnabas was in the early church, the great encourager, the man of great faith, the man of humble service and bringing the needs to those in Jerusalem with Paul, a man of sacrifice and energy in the name of Christ. Here, Peter, as a pillar, acted hypocritically, and it washed away many people in its wake. Even Barnabas grabbed his tray and got up as well. What can we learn from this? Many things. I'll close my moments with you on this. Hypocrisy, or duplicity of life, can be a contagion. See, an added danger to our own wrongdoing of hypocrisy 
an added danger, as it shows here in verse 13, is its impact on those we share our lives with. Sin is never done in a vacuum. There are unintended consequences to our life of hypocrisy. To us as parents, our children see it. We may think they don't, but they do. They absolutely do. And those who are closest to us know of it as well. And as we notice here in the text, neither would we find in any other text that hypocrisy lifts those around us. It's never going to be a good outcome for your buddy, for your brother in the Lord, for your sister in the Lord. It's never going to be a good outcome in their walk to watch your hypocrisy. It's going to affect them negatively and perhaps even wash them away in its wake. Hypocrisy, the fear of man, are dangerous sins. May God deliver us from the conduct that is not in stride with the gospel that we confess. Let's pray.